Well, grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Jesus told a parable about Israel's unbelief. That's our gospel text for this morning. There was a man who had planted a vineyard and rented it out. Ten farmers were supposed to tend the land and then, in return, give a share of the harvest. Pretty simple, right? But then he sent a servant to collect the portion of the harvest as per their agreement. That servant is mocked and beaten and then sent away empty-handed. Then another one, same thing. The third was also treated similarly, but was also wounded before being thrown out. So it's escalating. Finally, he sent his son to collect, his beloved son. He took one look at the son and said, this guy's the heir. Let's kill him so that the inheritance will be ours instead. So they did just that. They threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Well, what kinds of tenants are these? They had a pretty simple and a pretty good arrangement, I think. They don't own the land, but they're able to farm it and live on it in exchange for a cut of the proceeds. Pretty reasonable contract, if you ask me, and I don't imagine it was a huge percentage they were supposed to share, but it wasn't their land. Now, I know that people don't usually enjoy paying rent, but is that any way to treat the landlord's servants? Beat them, mock them, hurt them, kill them? More than that, is that any way to treat the owner's son? To drag him outside and murder him? Obviously, they don't know very much about inheritance laws, but sheesh. It seems a little over the top, doesn't it? This isn't the kind of parable that Jesus usually tells. It's almost surreal. Nobody would expect the characters in this parable to be acting this way because it is downright outlandish, and that's intentional. Yet, amazingly, this is exactly the treatment that Israel's landlord received. When Jesus said that it isn't fitting for a prophet to die outside Jerusalem, our reading a few weeks back, this is what he was talking about. He was talking about all the prophets whom God had sent to Israel over the years who were despised, rejected, beaten, scorned, mocked, abused, and even killed. And he's talking about the treatment that he's about to receive as the owner's only son, his beloved son. It may not make much sense to us, but the word of God is always somehow a rejectable word. John says that Jesus came into his own, and his own people did not receive him. They rejected him. And every single prophet to whom this word of God had been sent before was in fact a rejection of that word. And that word is Jesus. The prophets bore in their own lives and bodies the death of Jesus. They didn't experience their own rejection, but Jesus' rejection, even centuries before his incarnation. The scorn and the bitter hatred that they suffered was not actually for them, but for Christ and for the Father who sent him. Their death wasn't a result of who they were, but because of who they were representing, who they were speaking for to the people. The world, the devil, and our own sinful flesh all want Jesus dead 
And they want him to stay that way. Just like the son in Jesus' parable here, he too would be cast out of the vineyard, dragged outside the city to a place called the skull, and then killed. He is forcibly removed from the vineyard that God planted by the very tenants that he placed there. And while this parable addresses Israel, it also addresses the church too. Our sin put Jesus on the cross every bit as much as Israel's rejection. In fact, you might say that Israel's rejection was part of our salvation. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The rejected rock becomes the cornerstone of salvation. God takes the worst that the world can possibly throw at him, the crucifixion of his only son, Jesus, and he makes ultimate good out of it, the salvation of the entire world. We don't really get this parable if we don't see ourselves as those wicked tenants who beat the servants and killed the son. We do that too. I do that too. We do that in all the ways that we reject the word, whether not hearing it, not learning it, not inwardly digesting it and taking it to heart, when we make worship and the sacrament something optional, it's the same as rejecting that son. When those inspired and inerrant scriptures sit dusty on our shelves because we haven't bothered to take and read, we despise the word and heap stones on the prophets, when we ourselves receive the word of forgiveness and absolution and instead attempt to assuage our own guilt by our own self-justification. In other words, if you don't let Jesus be your Savior, you're telling him to buzz off, to save myself through my works. We despise Christ and the word and we crucify him all over and over again every time we add something to what Jesus has done. Even the slightest little religious thing. As though Jesus had never said, it is finished. Which brings us to the rite of confirmation, right? That you'll all undergo next Sunday. Confirmation is not something that you're doing to help Jesus out. It's not mandatory. Would you go to heaven without it? You can answer, absolutely you would. Confirmation is not the work that we're adding to our list of good deeds. It is recognition that you have heard and received the word and believed it. That the promises that God made to you are yours too. That you claim them as your own and through the faith that you've been given in Christ, you've made it your own. In this parable, the landowner evicts the tenants and gives the vineyard to others. Now, at one level, Jesus is talking about the land that Israel occupied, which was indeed taken away and given to others. And no amount of political force or military might is going to change that. At a deeper level, though, he's talking about the mystery of his kingdom, the stewardship of his grace that was entrusted to Israel until then, but would soon be given to a different steward, the church, a mixture of both baptized Jew and Gentile, into which all of you have been baptized as well, including Austin this morning. You 
are the new tenants. Not by your doing, but by God's baptismal grace in Christ. You are the heirs, as we heard in our baptismal liturgy. Not by your doing, but by the death of the Son. And that's the twist in this parable. The death of the Son becomes the life of the world. The death of the Son does grant the inheritance, not the way that those wicked tenants expected, but the death of the Son is our forgiveness, our salvation, our justification, being made right with God. There is no neutrality when it comes to Jesus. There is no comfortable middle position. There is no place where you can hold Jesus off at a safe distance. As Simeon said prophetically that day when he held the 40-day-old Jesus in his arms, this child is set for the rising and the falling of many in Israel. It's either faith or it's unbelief when it comes to Jesus. There is no middle ground. C.S. Lewis famously commented that you cannot accept Jesus as some nice moral teacher. He must be one of three things. He is either the Lord, like he says, or a liar, or a crazy person. A Lord, a liar, or a lunatic. The things that Jesus says and does can only mean that he is God, or he's a liar, or he's absolutely out of his mind. You don't get to have Jesus at a safe distance. It's either faith or unbelief. You either fall on Christ by faith with your sin, your brokenness, your lostness, take up your cross and follow him like Simon of Cyrene, or you end up crushed by the sheer weight of judgment coming down against your own self-righteousness. Resurrection to life awaits you in Christ. Fall on the rock, Christ, and he will forgive you. Fall on Christ the rock and he will save you. Fall on Christ the rock and he will raise you to new and everlasting life. Amen. And the peace of our God that surpasses all human understanding. Keep your hearts and minds in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen.